1: That is not the drug problem.
2: That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
1: I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: Patriotic fables certainly feel good, but they achieve little. The Middle East is in bloody chaos. The American military is unquestionably the most powerful in the world, we have traditionally felt and still feel that we have a responsibility to do something. As our guest today, Major Danny Sheerson, a U.S. Army strategist and former history instructor at West Point, wonders, what if Americans are incapable of helping, at least in a military sense? Has American power been effective at all? With his unique perspective from within the American military, Major Shearson uh, opens his newly published essay simply called, how we got here, with these somewhat ominous words. The United States has already lost its war for the Middle East, that is. Having taken my own crack at combat soldiering in both Iraq and Afghanistan, that couldn't be clearer to me. Unfortunately, it's evidently still not clear in Washington. End of quote. Major Shearson served tours with uh, reconnaissance units in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's written a memoir and critical analysis of the Iraq war called Ghostwriters of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. As a military officer, he had up-close and personal experiences in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and thus offers uniquely worthy contributions to discussion of this difficult and painful topic. What, if anything, can we do? What have all our hundreds of billions of dollars and uncounted loss of life and limb accomplished in some 15 years of war? I often wonder if the decision making processes regarding major operations make sure to involve those who are asked to carry out the operations. Thanks, uh, Major Searson, for being here with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Let me start out by asking regarding Iraq and Afghanistan, to what degree? are the people who have direct knowledge of the situations soldiers and employees consulted in policymaking. Well, uh, first of all, I all, to just thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh,
2: to be on your show uh, and, and to speak candidly about these issues that I feel so, so strongly about. Um, let me just start off with a quick disclaimer that, you know, everything that I, you know, write and everything that I speak about, you know, it's my own opinion. I don't speak officially Bush. for the Department of Defense or the United States Army or the United yeah, States sure. Military Academy. I only start with that so that I can go on to speak with an enormous amount of candor that I'm known for. Right, good. Uh, in it, to answer your question, we're really not questioned uh, a whole lot about that at all. I wouldn't say that your your average officer is certainly not queried, not at my level. Yeah. Uh, I've been promoted to major two years ago, which puts me right at the mid-range of U.S. Army officers. I just switched jobs to become uh, a strategist, a very small portion of the military, and I hope that in my future assignments I'll have, you know, some more influence on at least operational, if not strategic strategy. But the, the dirty little secret is twofold. First off, the American people are largely separated from our military and thus our endless wars, and most of the people who fight these wars are... Of course, not consulted and, right. and doing their duty, which is to their unit as much as it is to the country more generally. And uh, I can't pretend to speak for every soldier, but that's been my experience. Of course. Of course.
0: Well, since since nine eleven, there's been Bush, Obama, and of course, Trump is just barely getting started. Maybe he'll be very brief. We can pray. Can you compare the approaches? in in Afghanistan and Iraq, between Bush and Obama? Are they more different or more similar?
2: I've, I've been considering this a lot over the last okay. few years. I was, in my personal life, uh, certainly not wearing my uniform at rallies or anything to that extent, but in my personal life, I was a supporter of Barack Obama in 2008. I had just recently returned from a 15-month tour in Baghdad on December 31st of 07. So it was really the heat of the campaign season, and I was I was hoping for an amount of change. Uh, I think there has been more continuity between the administrations than most of us are comfortable admitting, than most of my friends on the progressive left are comfortable admitting. There are differences, and I'll start with those. I've written about this to some extent. I think that the George W. Bush administration quite different from his father's, frankly, Uh, did have quite a messianic vision for what America could and should accomplish in the Middle East with its military might. Hmm. Of course, debate the extent to which that was his own opinion uh, versus that of his top advisors. I'm thinking of Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz here. However, the Bush administration had enormously optimistic ends that we could... Bring democracy to the Middle East. We right. could stabilize the Middle East. Our military would be greeted uh, as, you know, as
0: liberators,
2: not occupiers, but rather as, you know, you know, we were heroes coming into their their cities with very little understanding of the region. Obama's approach to at least Iraq was, well, it was political to some extent. He came in at a very unpopular point for the war. He's campaigning at a time when support for the war is quite low and the Democrats had just won a significant election in 2006. So he does slowly pull troops out of Iraq, but here's where the continuity comes in. At the same time as troops were being pulled out of Iraq, as, as the surge, as they called it, was winding down, we found ourselves in a new surge to Afghanistan under the Obama administration in 2008. Uh, 9 through 11, I fought uh, as part of Bat Search in mm. 2011 in Kandahar province in Afghanistan. Oh. So the reason I would say that there are some significant similarities between the two is for all the promises made, the war on terror or the long war or whatever the, the phrase of the <laughs> moment is, it hasn't really ended. No. It, it hasn't wound down in any significant sense. There are different tactics, sure, to his credit. Barack Obama didn't place quite as many American boots on the ground, quite as many conventional soldiers, but that's not to say that we weren't conducting significant numbers of drone strikes and special forces raids and training missions throughout the region. And I'm not certain that there's been a whole lot of difference in terms of output from either of the two administrations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, it's still relying on military solutions. If you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, We're on Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is Major Danny Searson, a U.S. Army strategist and former history instructor at West Point. We're talking about uh, where are we? Where have we come? We're talking about the Middle East. And as he says, I opened up with a quote from our guest, patriotic fables certainly feel good, but they achieve little. And it seems to me that American foreign policy most of the time relies more on myth, on fable, than from learning from actual history. And to do that requires intentional forgetting. You write that if our actions in Afghanistan and Iraq have been, as you say, a failure, some people ask, well, perhaps Americans were simply never tough enough and still need to take off the kid gloves. Maybe there just weren't enough troops. Maybe all those hundreds of thousands of bombs and missiles just came up short. End of quote. Now, I, I feel like we've heard that before, over 40 years ago, after a failure to have some kind of victory in Vietnam. My question is, how, how can we expect to learn now? What, what can be different with this current failure? Do we uh, first need to simply recognize that it is a failure? Unlike the wake of Vietnam, do you have any reason to think we may at last be ready to see that it's a failure?
2: I tend, my wife would tell you that I tend towards pessimism on most of these issues. Uh, I, will, I will, however, say some of the, the protests and what appears to be a groundswell movement in the streets gives me a tiny bit of optimism. However, when you're talking about history, when you're talking about patriotic fables, the things that I write about, the things that I've studied, I have to tell you that I see history repeat itself... Very often, yeah. and I understand the cliche of that phrase, but right. you mentioned Vietnam. The United States Army and the American people, most of them had been fed and chose to, to remember the war in the following manner. You know, the soldiers never lost on the battlefield, they fought bravely, and it was those evil, unpatriotic, anti-war pa- protesters, combined with Jane Fonda combined with the crooked media, and that's what lost the war. Oh, right. Well, that's, of course, not accurate, (laughs) but I was told that by people in my family, and I've heard that from people on the right for years. Well, that's not what happened. And there's been, by the way, a scholarly consensus on how that's a myth for quite so many years. But here's the problem. No one reads... What academics, right? Except other academics. <laughs> no. And so and that and uh, I count myself among them, unfortunately, and book sales aren't so good. Yeah. But there there might in fact be a consensus on a lot of these issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it trickles down to the people. And memory is a tricky thing, and I'd argue a dangerous thing. I see it happening already with this war. And that's why I'm not optimistic. I'm already starting to see a new myth forming around the war in Iraq. It goes something like this. Uh-oh. You see, we were doing badly, sure, from 2003 to six. But then the president showed his gumption, George W. Bush, that is, mm-hmm. appointed a new enlightened commander, David Petraeus. Yes. And with 30,000 extra troops, which was just enough, we turned the tide, and we were winning, see? The only problem is we elected... You know, that feckless leader, Barack Obama, who unwisely pulled the troops out, pulling the carpet out from under the victory, and here we are, and that's how we got ISIS. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think our current president may have rode to office on that very fable. Am I wrong about that?
0: No, I think you're right. I think you're right.
2: And I fear that we are going to learn the wrong lessons of history again, and that facts don't matter. They may matter in the academy when you're defending your dissertation, mm. but they don't necessarily matter on the mainstream news. And final thing, if you sit, you know, I don't want to give the impression that this is a partisan issue. If you, if you were to think that it's only the riot or only the Republicans that, that, that buy these fables, you only have to listen to the mainstream debate. God forbid a Democrat uh, or a Republican got up there and didn't proudly proclaim right. their belief in American exceptionalism. Oh, I know. Uh, that just won't happen.
0: Ah, oh, and it's so we again, part of you know creating myth and believing myth, you have to forget you have to not know you have to specifically not know what's real, so that you can believe the myth and the myth of you know American exceptionalism is just you know every politician, democrat republican, they all they all subscribe to that. Our fifteen plus year military effort has been mostly called a war on terrorism it's still very much a hot war as opposed to a cold war, or, or many years, it's been going on many years in many different countries. We all want to be safe from terrorist attacks. We all don't want any more 9-11s. Is it not a reasonable goal to destroy terrorism from the Muslim world and do it militarily? Is there, is that a reasonable goal? or is What do you think about that, Major?
2: Well, so, again, in my personal opinion, which is certainly and rarely the position uh, position of the Department of Defense uh, or the Army, in my my opinion, the military approach is the original sin of the war on terror. I mean, the literary sin was declaring war on a concept like terror, but the original sin was a military approach. You see, Osama bin Laden, that's precisely what he wanted— Yes. Uh, sometimes I think it's almost as if the strategy we pursued is is as though we were purposely pursuing the strategy uh, that the Islamist extremists wanted us to. Seems, what I mean by that is, yeah. you know, I'll make a modest proposal, and unlike Jonathan Swift, it won't have yeah. to do it an <laughs> Irish baby. <babies, laughs> right. But a modest proposal is, what if we didn't do anything? Good question. What if we didn't do anything particularly military? What if instead of more bombs and more ground troops, which is, I think, what we'll say, what if instead of doing that, we sort of step back and let the extremism run its course? The average person in the Muslim world does not want to live under ISIS. No. But when we apply the military broadsword rather than the law enforcement and intelligence scalpel, then what we do is we create the very narrative of the bin Laden and the Baghdadis of the world, who are legitimate enemies of the United States and mankind. I don't mean to minimize this. I'm not even a pacifist. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, I believe that we're not approaching strategy from a sober viewpoint. That being said, I will add one more thing, and I know that I can be a bit bit verbose, but remember, our State Department, our diplomatic wing, is about the size of one army division. So when you have a hammer... Hmm. Uh, everything starts to look like a nail,
0: uh, so to speak. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I know. And and the, the military solution, it just uh, it it doesn't seem to happen. But that's all we seem to to look at. And you know, as I mean, nobody, neither you nor I, disagrees on wanting to beat these guys. ISIS, that's a bad. Bad people but what 's going to work that 's the thing what 's going to work to keep us safe from terrorism? It seems to me that all this you know we 're playing Trump is playing right into uh, isis 's hands by you know stopping uh, uh, refugees from coming into America. It looks like we 're stop you know banning Muslims from coming into america it 's like perfect, and most Muslims, of course, are at least as against ISIS as you or I. But this just adds recruiting power to them. It's amazing to me. I want to ask, you know, I remember after nine eleven, the question was, why do they hate us? Wh- whatever happened to actually addressing that question? That doesn't seem right. like we ever did. You, know, we, 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 you instead write that that we keep relying on massive, shocking military solutions. You say a more honest narrative of those moments would lead to a far more modest, minimalist approach to a messy and tragic region. The problem is that there seems to be something inherently un American about entertaining such thoughts. I wonder if you could say more about that. What you mean by that? That's pretty well, interesting.
2: Yeah, it's 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 powerful language and it's it's of course meant to be. I wonder sometimes about the American spirit, you know, if you a country that's founded as a city on a hill has an enormous amount of messianism from the start in a country that expands to the Pacific Ocean on the back of Manifest Destiny and uh, takes that all the way to the Philippines. We are not a people that are prone to pessimism or fatalism. And oh, by the way, we're extraordinarily optimistic about the, the capability, the efficacy of force. We were protected by two oceans for so long, unlike the Europeans, who are much more careful about war than Mm. we are these days. We never really had it on our doorstep, with the exception of the Civil War. And anything that smacks of defeatism, even if it really, truly turns out to be a coherent strategy, strikes many Americans, on, on both sides of the political aisle, by the way, as defeatism. And uh, I think Americans' uh, Achilles' heel at times is, uh, is, is insufferable optimism. And I think that can be dangerous, particularly when the, when the facts don't line up behind that. We seem to create our own facts. And make no mistake, uh, the people who uh, – some of these leaders count on your ignorance. They count on our ignorance wow. with regard to our own history. On it. I mean, if your average American truly understood some of the activities, for example, the overthrow of the Mossadegh uh, government in Iran in 1953, if the average American truly understood oh, yeah. the backstory, story, I, I have to imagine that would not bode well for those who are seeking the bellicose strategy in the elite.
0: Yeah, we don't want to know that stuff. We just, you know, just, oh, hit them. We got to do something. Just hit them. Hit them hard. Shock and awe. Your essay, And that, that leads us into my next uh, question. Your essay uh, cites two pivotal years in this ongoing disaster, 1979 and 2003. Uh, and and it seems like 1979 really was a dividing line in history. There's a before 1979 and after 1979. But before looking at the mistakes the U.S. made in 1979, you just mentioned a little bit in, uh, on how the Iranian Revolution of 1979 came about. And the year 1953 comes up. So a little bit more on that. And what could we have learned from what the U.S. did in Iran in 1953? What could we have learned and maybe done something differently that might have yielded results more favorable and less terrorism today? What could we have done differently in 1953? And, and I try to ask listeners, imagine if you were an Iranian and and all this happened to you. Major?
2: I keep going back to that sort of modest and minimalist approach. The United States has, like many other countries, we're not alone in this, but we have a very checkered record when it comes to inciting coups in other countries. (laughs) Most of the time, the coups, particularly the one that was incited by ourselves and British intelligence Mm -hmm. in Iran in 1953, just for those who don't know, Essentially, a, a, a nationalist, democratically elected, somewhat secular prime minister, Mosaddegh. He mm-hmm. wanted to nationalize the uh, oil resources for Iran so they benefited his own people.
0: Imagine that. And,
2: uh, you know, subjected to a coup that, that brought in a very brutal Shah, dictator, uh, Re- Reza Pahlavi, who was a Pahlavi dynasty tortured its own people and really set the stage for uh, the revolution and its ability to be hijacked by fundamentalists. What we could have done is to step out of the Cold War mindset. We really love binaries. We love strict dichotomies <laughs> and this manichaeism, but in reality... Look at the governments that were overthrown in the name of the Cold War domino theory. whether, hey, Just use the same decade. We could start in 1953 with You can go to 1954 with the Arbenz regime being overthrown in Guatemala and the brutal consequences of that all the way through the 1980s. And it doesn't end there. The other September 11th, as Noam Chomsky calls it, is yes. when the U.S. government colluded to overthrow the Salvador Orlando regime in Chile. So when we get back to Iran, you know it's important to recognize not that we're responsible for every you know dreadful act that Hezbollah commits or every decision the Iranians do. We're not responsible for every hanging in Tehran, but if we don't understand the backstory and why why people in Tehran might shout "Great Satan" at the United States, right? Uh, I don't think that bodes well True. for future policy. So it's, like, it's like the average American citizen and, and, and certain policymakers walk into these foreign policy issues, which are utterly complex, and they do so in a vacuum, a historical vacuum, with a little understanding, quite frankly, I I think the United States would do well uh, Mm. to avoid meddling in the affairs of other governments unless they are a direct threat to the United States. And, uh, And I think, for the most part, Chalmers Johnson, wrong is not the uh, the definition of blowback that I don't
0: know what it is. Yeah, we just don't we don't think about it. We don't want to see the history of it and I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite quotes. H.L. Mencken said to every complex problem there's a simple solution and it's wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know here there, there was also, you know, in 1954 uh, in Vietnam, we weren't there yet, but the French were. And here was uh, a, a, a nationalist struggle in Vietnam. They wanted their independence from the, the French uh, you know, overlords. They had been under French control. France. It was called French Indochina at the time. But instead, the U.S. slapped a picture of us versus them, the Soviet juggernaut at work behind the nationalistic movement. There was the domino theory. And so a few million lives and limbs were lost. Afghanistan... In that fateful year of 1979, uh, the Soviets did intervene in Afghanistan. What what overly simplistic analysis and policy did our then President Jimmy Carter come up with with regard to Afghanistan in 1979? And what what perhaps unwise military actions did that lead to? The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan
2: in 1979 is really one of these pivotal. Us versus them. Right there. Yeah, right there. Soviet invasion, but in fact started in 73, and it was Islamist, largely Islamist in its insurgency, and many of the actors that we began supporting turned out to be absolute Islamic fundamentalists and extremists, murderers in many cases who really turned into warlords at war's end. So, you know, what could we have done differently? We could have had a realistic viewpoint of what the Soviet intervention was, not seen it in the strict Cold War dichotomy, and we could have been a lot more careful about who we throw our... Money guns and you know, God forbid, Stinger missiles too, you know, because we might just end up fighting them on our, our ourselves someday. And perhaps it's no accident that uh, Al Qaeda plans 9/11 from within, so uh, within Afghanistan
0: itself. So. Yeah, and of course, it makes me think of Syria. You know, there's this bad guy government there, and I, neither one of us, I'm sure, is defending uh, uh, you know the government that's there, Hafez al Assad or whatever the I don't know the Assad government there now. See, I'm just a typical American uneducated here. But there's all these different uh, sort of a grab bag of insurgent groups. Again, most of them extreme Islamists. And we're supplying weapons to them? Whoa. You know, it just, you know, talk about refusing to learn uh, from history. So we're talking about you know 1979 uh and the Iranian revolution happened then the people rose up and and overthrew the incredible repressive shah of iran who was uh making a lot of money and uh the people weren't you know same old same old did jimmy carter president at the time see the soviets also behind the Iranian revolution and and if so how wrong was that
2: well I like, uh I don't know that President Carter actually thought that the Soviet Union was behind the the Iranian revolution, but I I do think that the Cold War narrative sort of colored everything. Uh, Uh, Many of our leaders, specifically some on the right, who were putting a whole lot of pressure on Carter, you have to remember at the same time, Carter and and any Democratic president is being hounded from the right by people who want to... uh, tear down the, the taunts which had been put in place earlier with the Soviet Union. In other words, a, a lessening of tension. And there's always these groups uh, on the right, think tanks. One of them was called the Plan B Organization, which I can get into if you are interested in it. And they're pushing always to say, no, we need to be more aggressive, more aggressive with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, they're largely uh, responsible for the election of Ronald Reagan and his uh, follow-on policy. Sure. But oh, yeah. I think that President Carter feels an enormous amount of pressure, like many Democratic presidents do. Uh, To look tough. You know, they say that only Nixon could go to China and make peace there. That's because he wasn't going to be criticized from the right for being too soft. But could you imagine if Jimmy Carter had tried to? the same thing? They would have called him (laughs) a dove, you know? True, true. I think.
0: Surrender, of course. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today From the military uh, perspective, from his military background, he obviously does not represent the military, uh, but just himself. Major Danny Searson is a U.S. Army strategist, former history instructor at West Point. Uh, He's written uh, an analysis of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. He served tours in those two countries, uh, and he's written uh, a new book uh, called Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. All right, we talked about 1979. Another pivotal year in history that you write about is 2003. Let's talk about the significance of that year. Why did Washington think, now, obviously, it's a couple of years after 9 uh, 11, why did Washington think they, as you say, had to take its fight against terror global? They had to take it across the world. Was it yet again a case of America, the American president inaccurately? And overly simplistically defining a more complex reality as that you're either with us or against us is, is that what happened in, in 2003 when we invaded Iraq?
2: You know, 2003 is uh, one of those years I think we're going to remember, and historians be writing books about 50 or 60 years of balance. Perhaps mm-hmm. we won't really have a clear consensus on what it meant until 50 years have passed. So, you know, what follows is my own opinion based on. Uh, oh, sure. Not so much experience alone, because I was a cadet at West Point uh, in 2003, uh, but from my study and my later experience in Baghdad, but it seems to me that the person who's president, whether some people, especially a lot of conspiracy theorists, believe it or not, it matters. It matters who's in the White House, because on foreign policy, the executive has an enormous amount of power, probably too much. Yes. So... The 2003 invasion, or the response to 9-11 more generally, given who was in the Bush administration, a lot of these gentlemen who've been pushing for uh, war with Iraq for a decade or more, you know, they populate the administration and, you know, they see, I I believe, through my study, an opportunity to do regime change in Iraq. You know, uh, there are these famous accounts of Donald Rumsfeld on the day of and the day after 9-11, already scribbling out a note to his, you know, to to his aide saying, like, find evidence of of Iraq's involvement. He was so sure that either he was so sure they did it, or, you know, if you're more conspiratorially minded, he was looking for an excuse. But 9-11 did provide this opening to to invade Iraq, to overtake the Taliban regime. I mean, we had so many choices, didn't we? You know, the original sin as I spoke to earlier was to, was to frame 9-11 as, as a war. I mean, certainly people need to be brought to justice. Right. But the minute you right. said it's a war and the minute you topple a regime, you know, Colin Powell said that the problem with invading Iraq is that we have to follow the pottery barn rule, which is you break it, you buy it. Right. And, you know, we broke Afghanistan and then we owned it. We had to buy it. And then following that the job was to done in Afghanistan. Fifteen years later, it's no closer to being done. Right. We go ahead and invade Iraq.
0: Yeah, they do matter very very much. It's true and and now, you know, we talk about uh, uh stealing the oil from Iraq. I mean, they now the the administration is denying they wanted to do that, but you know, it's just this simplistic stuff that people feel like, well, we should take it. It's ours. You know, and the simplistic stuff, it just it's amazing how we just prefer to see that cuz we don't have time, I guess. And a picture was painted of sort of a victory in Iraq. We, we got rid of the dictator. Now it seems that, it's interesting how history gets written, now it seems that Obama is being painted as prematurely pulling American forces out of that country. The old mythic tale is being heard, as you write, only a strong, assertive successor to Obama could write such gross errors. But you also write that Bush the Elder's limited, prudent strategy, that's your words, was Perhaps a good one. It wasn't so aggressive. He stopped when the goal of kicking Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait happened. When we achieved that, they got their troops out of Kuwait. But as you write that instead of leaving it at that, Americans drew another conclusion entirely. And that was that our military is unstoppable. In 2003, when Bush Jr. invaded Iraq, quote, so powerful was the optimism and jingoism of invasion proponents that skeptics were painted as unpatriotic turncoats. End of quote. I remember that only too well, when it was virtually impossible to, you know, to speak out against the 2003 war. It was like universal. The press was just absolutely in line, and nobody questioned it. In light of widespread protests against prior wars. How meaningful was that achievement, silencing, I mean, virtually silencing any and all opposition? And what are its long-term effects? And Bush the Elder's limited prudence strategy. Talk about those things a bit, if you could, please.
2: Right. So, you know, I'm not even taking a stand on whether, I'll start with Bush the Elder. uh, I'm not even taking a stand on whether the Gulf War of 1991 was... A good war. That's not even what I'm looking at. What I'm talking about as a strategist is basic, sober strategy. The balancing of ends, ways, and means while minimizing risk. And you have to say mm-hmm. that Bush the Elder sort of did that fairly well. You know, he kept the ends limited, which will eject Saddam from Kuwait. Limited ends. Not we're going to remake the country, not we're going to topple the dictator and take over Baghdad and occupy. Definitely. So, the means at his disposal, he still took half a million American soldiers, three times as many as we took to Iraq in the second invasion, because his generals told him, we're going to need a lot of guys to do this. And then, even more importantly, he built an international coalition, wow. not the farcical right. coalition of the willing.
1: Yeah.
0: Yes, please. This is, a, this
2: is an area of real interest for me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's important. I mean, it's what America's about, dissenting. Go ahead.
2: It, that, of course. And it's funny because, you know, nothing gets uh, military officers, at least in my experience, uh, and people on the right. And those two groups tend to be uh, similar. <laughs> yes. They tend to be a large Venn diagram. Uh, <laughs> there. But the, uh, the, the Vietnam War protests, for example, are so vilified. In the memory of people on the right, I mean, nothing would get a Fox Television post more upset than even mentioning uh, the Vietnam protesters. But really, weren't they just, after all, exercising their constitutional rights? And of course, you know. So anyway, it, it becomes very dangerous when uh, dissent is labeled as unpatriotic. Yes. Now, there were considerable protests around the world to the 2003 invasion. They were, but if you notice, they didn't have the staying power of, say, the Vietnam-era protest. I mean, the protests began as early as 1965 and mm-hmm. reached a crescendo in 68 and really 70 with uh, the invasion of Cambodia. Yeah. I haven't seen much of that in the United States now, despite a 15-year war. I've got uh, one reason I think that might be true. This is it. I'm a member, I've spent my entire life since I was 17 years old, as a member of an all-volunteer military, relatively small one. I mean, it's large you know, compared to many other countries, but small
1: compared to the army that
2: went to Vietnam. Half a percent of Americans are on active duty today. Most of them come from generally uh, rural and, and more lower class to lower middle class backgrounds, far from places like Los Angeles and the hip chic neighborhoods of oh, Chicago.
1: Right.
2: And there is no draft. There is no sense of uh, group uh, skin in the game. Yes, And when the, military comes to be that divided from the people what's the what's the reason to protest if i'm a mother Mm. in
1: 1968
2: and i open up the newspaper and i see oh my god the Tet offensive just occurred and 500 americans are dying a week which is the the accurate statistics for the time if i've got a son who's in senior high school you bet i'm going to be politically active and i'm going to have an opinion on that war because i know that my boy is uh you know is, is likely to be involved but what did george w bush tell us he didn't raise taxes. He lowered them. He didn't bring back the draft. He told us, go shopping and take your family to Disney World. Right. I think it's pretty nefarious. I will tell you that I think that this kind of militarism and uh, fighting an extended war is only possible because we do with an all-volunteer force, a warrior class almost, mm-hmm. a self-righteous one sometimes that starts to believe its own myth. And I think that's dangerous because uh, the citizen-soldier sort of is a uh, foundational element of this uh, republic and i fear
0: for it quite frankly oh there's a lot to fear right now no question about it and it's interesting you talk about how the military brass feels about the vietnam protesters but i gotta tell you i know that a lot of the guys that went over there were very thankful for the people in the streets here who were trying to bring them back all in one piece you know with all their limbs still attached they appreciated what we were doing this was not the uh, the military class back as you say, when there was a draft it's it's interesting the uh the division between the brass and and the grunts, the people you know in the field they could see that uh you know we were interested in perhaps uh bringing them them back here and uh, again in you know in in after in two thousand three where where were the arabs and even today the arab governments uh in terms of i mean you would think they might be interested in, in fighting against ISIS, but they're not doing it. You got the, the Kuwait, the Qatar, uh, the various different, uh, the uh, the United Arab Emirates, and of course, the Saudis, they don't seem to participate in this at all. What does that say about our policy? I mean, not that they're good guys, because especially the Saudis are not good guys, in my opinion. But, but what about the chances of any kind of success in the area and and. It seems like being divorced, our policy is like divorced from reality. Your comments on that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complex web of alliances that we've woven in the Middle East. And sometimes I think it's gotten so Byzantine that no one can quite figure out or remember how oh. we got where we are. Oh, yeah. One thing, I will agree, one thing that I will agree with you on is that um, the real only answer, and there's nothing simple about this, but the only answer to defeating ISIS, in my opinion, is that it has to be completed by uh, a Sunni Arab Muslim force. And and what I mean by that is, if the United States is sending its ground troops or has a significant presence on the ground of our soldiers, it's going to be painted in the propaganda as a war on Islam by the West. Yes. If only the Kurds are fighting with American weapons, see, ISIS will be able to say, see, it's an ethnic war, it's a racial war, it's the Kurds versus the Arabs, they hate us. And if it's the Iraqi government, the Shia government, if it's only them fighting ISIS, see, ISIS will be able to say, you see, it's an inter-Islamic civil war and the Shia are out to get us. I mean, the only true way to defeat ISIS, and the thing that ISIS, in my opinion, least wants, is to face off against a more moderate Sunni Arab army. Because that would be the ultimate uh, smack in the face for them, and they wouldn't be able to build much propaganda value. So I, I come back to those alliances and say, hmm. you know, I can't help but wonder if we play into their hands right. when we we have the president asking for a, uh, a comprehensive strategy, I believe the 30 days for his uh, his due date is coming up pretty soon, uh, from the Department of Defense. And, and I really would like to believe that our senior leaders, and, and there are some really intelligent people up there, so i I
0: I'm sure. I'm hoping
2: for something good. But, you know, there are some smart guys up there, but there's a lot of conventional thinkers as well, and I fear Hmm. that what we'll get is more of the same. Uh, Well, I need one more brigade. Uh, If I only had two brigades, then I could really, you know, give it to ISIS. But what then? What next? Even if we take Raqqa, what next? The ideology is not going anywhere. And if American troops are walking around in the streets of Syria uh, without an uh, an Arab face, you know, without a a major... uh, internal you know muslim force doing it then it's really just going to feed a narrative and it, it's not going anywhere especially not with the youth bulge demographically in the middle east
0: yeah that's right there are a lot of young people there you have interesting points there and and having seen it and been there that's it's good to uh, to get your perspective on it and you know we may be we the the west here uh there's currently as this is being recorded uh, are in battle uh, against isis in mosul but as you correctly note it's an artificial state and the artificial state of Iraq is in ruins it it seems to have reverted back to its uh ottoman component parts the pre world war 1 component parts which were baghdad, mosul and basra you quote william butler yeats in your essay what what did he have to say which which really shed some light on this i think that's uh, some interesting points
2: so you know, I uh, I used the very well-quoted uh, phrase that he had said in one of his works, which is, uh, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed; the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I- I'll tell you that the time that I first thought about that, and I actually believe I scribbled it down,
1: hmm. was...
2: Uh, in in Baghdad, as a twenty three year old lieutenant in the uh, late fall of two thousand six, you know we were in the midst of a civil war and we were finding dozens of bodies in the streets, mm. uh, executed, beheaded, and it, it was as though Baghdad was was literally and figuratively on fire. And mm. it it uh, I had never seen anything like that in, in my life, of course, and so it was shocking on a personal level. But I started to wonder why this might be. And it, it occurred to me that when, when a state falls apart, especially a state that's apt to do so because it's an artificial right. destruction like Iraq is, this is what happens. You see that the people in the neighborhood who gain power are the people who, uh, they're the worst of us, sociopaths, people who... Mm. Uh, you know, they may seem like an old person, but then when things fall apart, you realize that they, they really had a horrible character, and they become warlords or militia leaders. And then the, the average person gets behind them because they're afraid sure. of the warlord on the other side who happens to be a different sect or religion or ethnicity. And I think mm. the Baghdad in 2006 and seven is, is sort of a microcosm of the Middle East more generally today.
1: Wow. Mm. And I
2: think things truly have fallen apart, and in some cases... Uh, the best are lacking conviction, and, and the worst have kind of come forward with an enormous amount of intensity. And, you know, every time that the uh, the Al-Qaeda-style ideology remakes itself, it only gets worse. You know, when you cut the head off yeah. the snake, it's like another one grows, but they're younger Turks, and they're more dangerous. Uh, and, and I think ISIS is almost like the, the evil uh, child of, of Al-Qaeda, who has, who has actually or disown them to a certain extent, which tells you, tells you something. But uh, you, you mentioned the three different Ottoman provinces that, you know, Iraq comes from, you know, uh, the Mosul, uh province, Basra. Basra was primarily Shia, Arab, you know. Um, you know, but was primarily Kurdish. Uh, they're, they're still Muslims, but they're, they're Kurdish ethnicity. And then Baghdad uh, was, was a mixed city, but the, the rest of the province was out west. And that was mostly Sunni, and this the idea that the three of these can be placed under a uh, mm. monarchy, and that we're going to have stability. I mean, the British had a bomb this place uh, with their biplanes in the nineteen teens and twenties in order to pacify rebellions that right. happened in Iraq, and then after that, you know, they emplaced a king. And that king is overthrown by uh, a friend of and a colleague of Saddam who eventually overthrows him. And so I guess the thing to remember is, you know, Iraq is held together by first imperialism and then homegrown dictatorship. And just the very idea that the uh, American army with barely 150, 180,000 men on the ground, which is a third as many as it took to liberate Kuwait, the very idea... We would be able to to stabilize a place that had been held together by brutality. It it really speaks of delusion, and and quite frankly, it, if you look at a lot of American foreign policy over the last uh, the last fifty years, but especially since the fall of the Soviet Union, it's been informed by an incredible amount of uh, sort of messianic intensity, and uh, and and the militarism is, is shocking.
0: Yeah, hyper-interventionism, you, you called it in, in your piece there. I did and, and you were a history teacher in at West Point. How, did you talk about this stuff with your students, and how did that go? It must be sort of different from what they're supposed to believe.
2: You know, th- this will be the moment where I sort of uh, defend the institution. Obvi- obviously, I'm a, a critic and a skeptic, and I would never pretend that my Views are mainstream, and I don't think the a sense. But this is, I'll tell you what's been interesting to me, is is I taught uh, at West Point, which is really one of the premier history departments in in the country, Hmm. and not, I I think when I went to West Point, uh, I expected, and I may even have been looking for, given uh, who I was when I was 17 years old, I was younger and more mature, uh, this sort of that it was going to be a bunch of automatons, you Hmm. know, uh, who were militaristic and that, you know, they'll feed you one message. And what i found was something completely different, both as a student and then, of course, later as an instructor, is there's an enormous amount of uh, free thinking among the instructors there. Interesting. The type of officer who is um, who's interested and drawn to being an instructor at the military academy is usually fairly free thinking. They're some of the best officers in the Army. What the Army does is they take you out. I was just back from Afghanistan in 2012, and uh, I was selected to go back and teach at West Point, and they pulled me out of the army for two years. I mean, I was still in the army, but I was getting paid. But they sent me to grad school, at a civilian university here uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, the University of Kansas, and that was, you know, I had basically no military duties uh, except to take a physical fitness test every six months. And I was fully immersed in a history department in a civilian school, and got my master's degree and worked on the uh, started work on my PhD, and they paid for all that. And then they send you back to the military academy, and you know. You know, we're not giving them propaganda on either side. We're not giving them Uh some sort of government byline, and we're not giving them our own opinion. We're just trying to get them to think. So I would choose my students and uh, play devil's advocate, but I had an enormous amount of freedom in the department.
0: Well, that's great, getting them to think. I can't imagine uh, our current president would be anything for that. And I've I've wondered, you know, as a member in good standing of our armed forces, how how did it feel to discover all these realities in, in the face of you know a long military uh, background i mean the military is ordered by the politicians to do one thing and i wonder i wonder how it felt to to learn all this stuff about uh some of the missions that uh our guys are being sent on
2: well it's it's been a life altering um and emotionally sort of difficult journey for me as and i don't want to give the impression that there's anything special about me you know i'm part of a generation of professional soldiers who've, who've had to go through this and we all respond differently but you know when i was uh, 17 years old and my mom had assigned me into the military to go on active duty at west point because i didn't turn 18 until uh, during basic training mm-hmm. I, I i suppose all i ever wanted i wanted to get out of my neighborhood on staten island and do something special and mm-hmm. prove that i was a man in, in, a, in a true sense and uh I remember nine uh, eleven. My father worked across the street. He uh, got on the last Staten Island ferry before the buildings came down. My uncle oh are firefighters in New York, and luckily they all lived. But, mm. uh, l- several uh, firefighters in the neighborhood were uh, killed. Some close friends of the family, and mm. I, at the time, of course, I was very excited about the opportunity to get revenge. And I remember watching the bombs drop on Baghdad in two thousand three. I was a I was a cadet at West Point, and my biggest fear—I'm embarrassed to say—was that I'd miss the war, that it would be over, because I never could have believed we'd still be fighting in Iraq you know, mm. 13 years later. I thought it would be over in a few months, and I'm going to miss it, because I'll be at school at the academy, and then what a disgrace I'll be. Nah. I only give all that backstory to help understand how emotionally jarring it was for me to yeah. have an academic and personal sea change. I think that my 15 months in Baghdad really changed my perspective, and that plus 30 or 40. Books on the region later, because all I did in my free time in Iraq was read and Mm. study and get 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 around this issue. Uh, I was disturbing, and and I certainly became more of a critic of the the war. And I continue to serve, so this is not to say that I you know I don't do my duty and I won't go where I'm sent. But I I think that we need free thinkers making uh, military plans and strategy and advising our civilian politicians. And it, it was very difficult to find. Some of our nefarious past or backstory in the Middle East, and yeah. it was very difficult to lose soldiers um, yeah. killed and wounded in my platoon and then later in my, my troop or my company when I commanded at a higher level um, for uh, very difficult fights that I was proud. They, uh, you know, acquitted themselves well on behalf of their buddies, but fights that Quite frankly, in my opinion, didn't make the areas we worked in all that much better. This is my last comment on this. I served in uh, in and around Baghdad in two thousand six and a seven, and I served the southwest of Kandahar province in two thousand eleven, which were two pretty hot areas in those two times. Indeed, I wish I could tell you that there was a, a flourishing democracy and lots of security in either of those places, but years later, or ten years later, uh, from Baghdad and. Six years later, from Kandahar, uh, what you'll find is the Taliban is essentially in control of the part of Afghanistan right. that I was in, and uh, and Baghdad, of course, and Iraq in general are in utter chaos. Okay, uh, yes. Even today, with, uh, with with ISIS forming, so mm. it's it's a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing to lose soldiers, and it's a very difficult thing to uh, oh, sure. to lose that idealism. But uh, I still would choose truth over wishful uh, ignorance.
0: I'm sure. And as as you say, we just have a little bit of time left, uh, that perhaps we need a humbler perspective. You write that it's well past time for the U.S. to bring its incessant urge to respond militarily to the crisis of the moment under some kind of control. Policymakers should accept realistic limitations on their ability to shape the world to America's desired image of it. Are we getting there? Is the public getting there? Do you have some sense of optimism on this?
2: My only optimism is on behalf of the public and citizen grassroots action. I, I can't personally say I have a whole lot of optimism when it comes to the mainstream leaders of our parties, although there are a few people uh, that, that I think are starting to get the right idea. And we saw some uh, new thinking on foreign policy in, in the Sanders campaign, uh, failed campaign, but um, yeah, we'll see. I would like to believe that the grassroots activism we've seen will continue and it will focus on issues of national security and not just on domestic policy or kitchen table issues. Yeah. I'm, I'm nervous that foreign policy and rethinking foreign policy will take a back seat precisely because the average American citizen does not have skin in the game and the average American citizen is not touched either financially, right. at least directly, or physically, in terms of a draft, by this war. And so because of that, I yeah. I fear we will not take a humbler approach. Again, my only optimism is is, is citizen activism. And I, I'm encouraged when I hear about the thousands of calls to congressmen and the marches in the street. And I'll tell you, you know, this probably sounds like I'm some sort of wild lefty, and perhaps and no. for the military I may appear that way. But I, actually, I'm happy to see people in the streets And I'm happy to see people caring, almost regardless of what side they take. I just like some action. And when people care enough to protest about what I'm doing, I feel like what I'm doing is important and at least paid attention to. The worst thing you can do is say nothing and let this war go on another 25 years.
0: Yes, citizen participation. That's what it's about. Thank you so much for being with us. His new book is called Ghostwriters of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. Major Danny Searson, S-J-U-R-S-E-N. Thank you so much for being with us today. Very, very informative, a special perspective.
2: Uh, Thank you so much. It's been uh, an absolute honor, and uh, thank you to you and and to your listeners as well. All right.
0: Kind of sad. Thank you.